Okay, good evening. Welcome to our evening Dhamma session. We have a full house here, I think. Good to see. Tonight we're looking at the Arya Paryesana Sutta. Ujjimanikaya number 26 So there's some Dhamma in this Sutta of course There's uh, some I think fairly useful and Sort of to the point Teachings But it also has uh, one of the best Descriptions of the Buddha story well, it has one of the good uh, stories of retellings of the story of how our teacher became a Buddha. <coughs> Arya Paryesana means uh, Paryesana is seeking or looking for, right? Uh, Arya is noble. Arya, Arya probably meant uh, victorious or something like that. It, I'm assuming it does actually come from the word Ari, which means enemy. Arya means one who conquers one's enemies. Actually, I'm not sure about that. That's how they describe it, but where it actually comes from, I'm not sure. Anyway, the word Arya is an ancient Sanskrit word um, and the Buddha co-opted it because it was in vogue at his in his time to use it to mean the upper class right? the idea is that it came from outside of India there were these uh, conquering types who came and massacred and well, maybe not massacred but came and took over the Indus Valley and uh, they called themselves the Aryas eventually they became the upper class the Brahmins and the nobles and so there was this question of how one how you define a, an Arya and that's what the Buddha put in his word about what it means to be an Arya and he said it has nothing to do with one's birth everything to do with one's actions which makes one a high class individual right sort of this famous iconic teaching of the Buddha but here we have Arya Paryesana it's a, a, a quest or a search that is noble and I think that well sums up sort of the question that we pose in uh, in, in Buddhism and in spirituality in general is what, what are we looking for? What is the meaning of life? What is the goal of life? Right? We're trying to understand what we should strive for. The sutta starts with a bunch of monks sitting around talking 
And the Buddha comes in and asks them, what are you talking about? And they say, well, we're talking about you, actually. We're talking about the Blessed One. And the Buddha says, oh, very good. Considers that that's a proper topic because the story of the Buddha is something, something valuable. You know, the Buddha appears in, on, on various occasions to be somewhat uh, egotistical, right? If you were to take it at face value, it appears that way. Um, but the Buddha was quite clear, you know, agree with it or not, but he was quite clear that that he was a special individual. Um, and I think it's bold, but but um, indisputable. I mean, what's disputable is whether the Buddha was actually enlightened and and perfect and in different ways and so on. But um, what's indisputable is that if you are. Um, there's no reason, or in fact, there's good reason, to let people know that you are. You know, when you're like the Buddha, letting people know, "Hey, I'm uh, an exceptional individual," uh, has has some great benefits to it for the people who hear you, right? So, in a way, we put the Buddha beyond these sort of concerns about ego and and. Uh, Humility, because they wouldn't serve any purpose. I mean, some sorts of humility the Buddha does obviously. I mean, all all humility the Buddha had no ego whatsoever. But uh, keeping quiet about his attainments, we put him as an exception because he could handle it. He could handle people's scrutiny completely, and he was so. I mean, this is the idea: is that he was so. Uh, Radiant That uh, you couldn't help but Accept the fact that it was true Wow, this is someone who is quite special And obviously the, the benefit is Then you can learn from and, and gain from Associating with such a person That this is the savior, right? You talk about you're looking for a guru Looking for someone who can teach you That in and of itself Is a great uh, quest so talking about the Buddha, thinking about the Buddha is considered to be proper a part of it's a part of the Dhamma. The Buddha says when you meet you should talk about the Dhamma or, or not talk at all. Enter into meditative states. But then he start he so in order to help them out, he gives his story. And this is part of this sutta. Uh, but to preface it, he gives them a teaching, and it's a teaching on the noble, the noble. Uh, sort of, to, it's a really a good preface to the Buddha story, and it's why anyone takes up religion because they start to ask these questions about what they're looking for. Um, quite often, we never ask these questions. Before we know it, we're caught up in some ambition or goal that we didn't ever think through or, or consider carefully. Why we were aiming for that right? We're taught from an early age Some very simple, fairly simple um, goals Like sensual pleasure Babies look at how we coddle infants with sensual pleasures To get them to be quiet or to put a smile on their face Which makes us happy And so from a very early age we're taught 
We're taught the benefit of these things and we're taught how to get. We're taught to try and get. We're taught that this is this is desirable. And so the babies become addicted to these pleasures and it's, it's not a must, you know, it's not a evil, evil addiction, but it's still addictive. And then we learn about things like money, right? We learn about things like sex as we grow older, all as means to, to gain further sensual pleasure mostly. Food, obviously, food's a big one. Music, etc., etc. It, it diversifies, but it doesn't really ever leave. Well, it, it generally centers around sensual pleasure. If we're a little bit more high-minded, or if our parents are a little bit more intellectual, they might have a sort of a broader sense or a more abstract sense of happiness. And so, there's this quest for 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 power, for knowledge, for wisdom, even. And by wisdom, most likely philosophy. Um, and there's the ideas of social activism and so on. Many, many quests and many, many journeys, many, many ambitions. Often we don't get beyond the the most simple ones like food, well, ple sensual pleasure and, and money or ambition. So we find ourselves putting so much effort into just trying to be maybe not rich but well off, right? St stable, stability is, is intoxicating as a goal, seeking out the stable life. The illusion, right? It's a really an illusion. Or it's a... Well, the stability is an illusion. But uh, it's precarious, is more to the point. Because someone can live many, many years, if they're lucky, in a very stable situation, right? But it's like a house of cards. Any moment it can fall. All it takes is one disaster and you can lose everything so, but sometimes we do go beyond that and we're seeking for social justice or other things like fame or power or so on uh, but even that then we we get caught up in, in what, what turns out to really be delusion because we're trying to change the world or we're trying to become something. And you still can't escape this question, why, why? More importantly, and the Buddha puts it in a much better way, he says, you've got a problem, you've got several problems. What are our problems? Our problems are birth. Birth meaning rebirth, we'll be born again. Old age, sickness, death. 
old age sickness death easy to understand easier than than rebirth or birth but this is really what we understand to set the Buddha going right this realization that yeah all those things that I thought of as valid goals become invalid because I'm gonna get old sick and die and in the face of old age sickness and death they're all meaningless all those lies I was taught about the right way, the right search, the right ambition turn out to be wrong, turn out to be deluded, ignorant, worthless, meaningless, because I'm going to get old, sick, and die. Just because of that, right? In the face of eternity, in the face of reality, they're meaningless. And be a bum on the street, live under a picnic table. It's no less valid in existence. It's no less meaningful. Living in a mansion or even let's go to the bigger ones like helping people. Curing cancer. Curing cancer in the face of reality doesn't actually mean anything. He might even say, and this is where I get into dangerous territory, he might even say that becoming a Buddha is meaningless, becoming enlightened is meaningless. And I think, But I think to a certain extent, from one point of view, it is meaningless. Of course, not from our point of view. Meaning, you should never think it's pointless to become enlightened, like why bother kind of thing. But part of becoming enlightened is to see that this idea of meaning, in fact, this seek, this, this search is uh, is based on delusion and ignorance. But he talks about the noble search. So clearly there is a search that is right. And it's important to understand that, I think. Because people always ask, well, if you're talking about giving up desire... What about desiring for Nibbana or desiring for enlightenment? Isn't How could you ever practice meditation if you don't want to practice meditation? And I've talked about this before, and it's really just a mind game, right? The logic of it doesn't, doesn't relate at all to reality. This is like, um, I mean, it's a whole other situation. It's more like your head is on fire. And your intention is to to uh, put the fire out, or or more more to the point, we're full of, as you say, desires, wants, ambitions, ambitions. And when we realize the problem, we want to get rid of the wanting, uh, but it's just a word, you know. It's not really. There may be moments, and there will be moments of desiring to become enlightened, but that's not really how it works. It's more like an eye-opening and saying, oh, my head's on fire. Well, I better put that out. Uh, it's, it's like seeing that you're, as I've said before, internally inconsistent. You want certain things, but you're doing things that don't lead to that. And this is what the Buddha says in this sutta, based in a different way. He says... Being myself, he says, when I was unenlightened, being uh, 
myself subject to old age, sickness and death I sought out that which was subject to old age, sickness and death Meaning I uh, I had Basically I had this Catalyst or this uh, Source For that would lead to Could lead to my suffering You know I'm going to get old Sick and die and I Purposefully sought out Things that didn't lead me out of that, out of that, but led me only to more suffering. Basically, myself being subject to suffering, I sought out that which was caught up in suffering. And he lists a bunch of things: a wife and children, servants, goats. Goats and chickens, elephants, gold and silver, etc., etc. All sorts of possessions, all sorts of acquisitions, a stable life, and so on. All to ward off suffering and to bring about happiness And yet these things that I sought out Did not, could not, can never Bring me, uh, bring about happiness you know, Because they're subject to old age, sickness, death, sorrow, lamentation, despair Impermanence really Change, loss You go through all of this, get all of this The life, the house and family and money and even power, wealth, whatever You go through it and in the end you're just old <laughs> Sick, dying Maybe you lived a good life, maybe not But it's over, that's it And then it starts all over again You forget it all and come right back and do it again Not really a noble sort of uh, Activity uh, From a Buddhist perspective So he taught the noble search And this is again this Clear uh, Fork in the road, or this, this, uh, what's the word? Like the perpendicularity, the opposite nature of the Buddhist path and the way of the world. It's hard to, it's hard to become inclined towards seeking out freedom from suffering because it goes very much against wanting. How can you want something that goes against wanting? The only way is when you see that wanting is causing you suffering. And actually this is very much what our practice is about on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis. 
people talk about letting go we had this question of someone having trouble letting go which is you know it's it, i mean it's, it's a common thing to say but it's it, it's indicative of a misunderstanding of what it means to let go because you can't struggle to let go path the path to freedom from suffering has nothing to do with wanting you can't want to be free from suffering you can only see that wanting this, wanting that is a cause of suffering and, and thereby let it go that's the reason why we let go but the Buddha was before you know before he learned how to practice meditation he 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 started by with this realization hey these things that i'm seeking out these things that i'm striving for they're not bringing me happiness they can't bring me happiness and so we know this much about the story he left home when i was still young black-haired young man endowed with the blessing of youth Though my mother and father wished otherwise and wept with tearful faces, I shaved off my hair and beard, put on the yellow robe, and went forth from the home life into homelessness. Now this wasn't such a radical thing, of course. In the time, Buddha got the idea from someone else, apparently. He saw a monk, an ascetic, wearing a simple cloth. I guess it was a tradition to wear orange, but was probably more that was the kind of a simple dye, I don't know. But uh, wearing a toga, much like this, I think. I think this is probably similar to how they wore it. Though I have no idea. Just a guess. No evidence. Um, yeah. And so what did he do? He went forth and he, f he sought out a teacher. He sought out someone who could teach him this way. And again, this is why we consider thinking about the Buddha such a good thing, because he was a very special sort of teacher. The Buddha, of course, didn't find a good teacher. He found two teachers who were, well, actually, as it goes, quite good teachers. Alarakalama and Uddaka Ramaputta. Alara was uh, a teacher in his own right, or a practitioner in his own right, and he practiced what we now call samatha meditation, some sort of practice that led him all the way to the, uh, the base of nothingness, natikinchi, that would lead to the formless Brahma realms, which we were just talking about last night in our, our Abhidhamma study. If you practice certain types of jhana based on, on these things like nothingness, take nothingness as your object, it, it comes in a progression. Your mind is contemplating infinite space and then, or an infinite object and then infinite space and then infinite consciousness and then take away the consciousness and there's nothing, contemplation of nothingness, emptiness. This, this is you hear a lot about emptiness, and I think it's just a, for many people they confuse emptiness with nothingness. Of course, for others it's a philosophical thing, but this experience that people have of this profound nothingness is just this what the Buddha talks about, and the Buddha was not very impressed. 
even though having uh, learned it all, he was able to to uh, master it in a very short time. He came back to Alara and he said, you know, is this it? And he, he described his experience in Alara and said, oh yes, now you are equal to me. Uh, come, teach this, teach my students with me, we will be equals. And he said, I'm sorry, this isn't freedom from suffering, I know where this leads. And I guess there was a sense that he kind of remembered his past lives because he knew somehow that this only leads to the Brahma realms. Because of course he'd practice this life after life. But I think it was sort of at least a, a sense from coming from past lives that he knew that this didn't lead. And it's quite profound for him to realize that, but uh, logically, is what you have to understand about mindfulness is it's a quite it's an it's a categorically different sort of meditation. There's no reason why trance meditation should lead to enlightenment. You can talk about it. You can fudge it. You can talk about how when your mind is very calm, uh, the defilements go away, and, or something like that. But going into a trance doesn't teach you anything about suffering. It doesn't change the way we look at the things that we cling to. It gives us a contrast, which is useful. Hey, this is better than that. But it doesn't tell you that that, all of those things we cling to are wrong. In fact, you can cling to jhana. You can cling to it and say, boy, I, I like that state I was in and so on and want it more and so on. You can even become egotistical about it. So he left and he went to Uddhaka Ramaputta and uh, Uddhaka taught uh, something that Rama, his his teacher, had taught him. That was uh, the practice that leads to the realm of neither perception nor non-perception, which is one level higher than nothingness. Some state where you're not even really Percipient, or you're not even really aware. You can't say that you are aware. You can't say that you're not. There's some very, very subtle awareness. It's like the state of, like a pilot light. The fire has gone out, but there's still a, there's still something. Very subtle state. It's about as subtle as it gets. But he said, "Is this it?" He said, oh yes, wow, you're even better than me Because he hadn't even mastered it Rama had But Uddhaka Ramaputta hadn't, had not So he said, here, you take over as teacher Teach these people, teach them how to gain this And he said I'm sorry, but this is also not The path that leads to enlightenment This again only leads to some high Brahma realm Which is interesting Because if you read like the Upanishads It's all about one Enlightenment is oneness with Brahma and I think that makes very clear that the that Buddhism is distinct. Buddhist enlightenment is distinct from all this talk about becoming one with the universe, one with God, one with etc., etc. Nirvana is not becoming one with everything, which is apparently, which is I think we, well, many years ago when I looked it up in the dictionary, that's what the dictionary said. Nirvana is is like putting out a fire. So different, he said, no 
And so he left him as well, and then he 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 wandered around. And this is where the different interpret different stories diverge. This story doesn't talk about the many years he spent torturing himself. It says he wandered and eventually came to Uruela, to the Magadan country, and right came to Uruela in Senanigama. Senanigama, Nigama would be a village, I think. And he found a place with a clear flowing river and pleasant smooth banks and this village nearby that well this is a good place to describe and he sat down under the Bodhi tree and well long story short he became enlightened and being myself subject to old age sickness and death I attained the security attained to that which was not subject to old age, sickness and death, which is Nibbana. Nibbana is something that is not subject or, or not subject to change, not subject to impermanence. It's unshakable. And it, it, it's, it shouldn't be hard to understand. It's unshakable because it doesn't arise. Nibbana is the state of non-arising. It's where the mind enters into complete peace hard to fathom I think it's hard to be too excited about it either because obviously it's totally counter to our ideas of getting this and getting that but when someone has realized Nibbana their, their whole nature changes it, it changes you because suddenly you've seen true peace and uh, you can't deny that it's in a it's categorically superior superior to any other kind of happiness. Sorry, I forgot to turn this on. I don't know if you guys could actually hear me out there. Sorry about that. So in brief he attained Nibbana. Having attained Nibbana, he, he realized for himself that his enlightenment was unshakable. It's the, the wonderful quality of seeing Nibbana is that, unlike other kinds of wisdom, insight, realization, just the simple experience of Nibbana, because it's in a whole other category, category it's of a whole other nature than anything else, it it changes you irrevocably, unshakably. And he knew that this was his last birth. There was no there will be no renewal of being. So the Buddha had not only seen Nibbana, he had attained to what we call uh, I guess Saupadi Sesa Nibbana, I mean he had become free from all defilements. Normally, people become enlightened in stages, meaning they see Nibbana and some of the defilements are removed and then slowly, slowly through repeated uh, experience, the mind becomes increasingly subtle, increasingly in tune with peace until eventually defilements are, are uh, vanquished. 
entirely, but the Buddha all at once they came free from defilements very quickly. In fact, there's this idea that it would, shouldn't have taken him six years to become enlightened, but he had some bad karma that he had to atone for in a past life. And actually, once he had atoned for that on that last day after those six years, it only took him one night to become enlightened. And it should have only taken him one night from beginning to end. But those six years were because he had insulted an enlightened being and said they were torturing themselves. They were some kind of silly person who, some kind of wrong-headed individual who tortures themselves. And so his mind was corrupt still in that way, and so he had to work through that bad karma. His mind, I guess, wasn't corrupt, but that corrupt mind led him to, well, yes, to this misunderstanding. There was a corruption, the misunderstanding that he had to torture himself. So very quickly he became free from suffering. That's uh, won't go into much detail there. There's not too much to say about that. What's interesting, of course, is this next part where what happened when he became enlightened, his outlook seems to have changed. Where, or even perhaps up until that point, he he hadn't thought about whether he should teach. So it may not have changed so much. But then there came the question of what he should do. Now that I've become enlightened, what should I do about it? Is there anything I should do about it? The obvious question is, should I teach? And he thought to himself, people aren't interested in this. People don't want this. People aren't looking for this. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that bizarre? No, People aren't looking for Buddhism. what he said to himself. I mean, people aren't looking for the truth. They're looking for this thing that we've now come to value so so greatly. I think you could make an argument that if Buddhism hadn't been found in the world, you might you might sort of feel the same as the Buddha here. Of course, now when we hear, once we've learned that, that meditation exists and enlightenment exists, it's interesting for people. It's something that people are inclined to study and practice, but can you imagine if if there wasn't any idea about this way? At best people go for God or Brahma. Look at all the other religions out there. I think the I don't think, I mean Buddhism is categorically different. It it bears repeating. And this practice is very much different from all those other ways he said enough enough with teaching the Dhamma that I even I found hard to reach for it will never be perceived by those who live in lust and hate he spoke in verse apparently those died in lust died meanings means uh, their minds are colored are like wearing rose colored glasses wrapped in darkness will never discern this abstruse Dhamma which goes against the worldly stream, subtle, deep, and difficult to see. Let's look at that, goes against the stream. Patisotagaming nipunang 
go patti patti means against sota is the stream gaming this goes patti sota gaming nipunang is uh, sublime i think yeah. abstruse whatever that means subtle subtle gambirang dudasang anung it is deep hard to see dudasa Ragarata na dakati. Those who are, those who delight in passion, will not see it. Tamo kandena avuta. Wrapped up in a mass of darkness. I think I'm not quite sure. Uh oh. So the Buddha thinks he's not going to teach. He gets the idea that it would be worthless, meaningless. It would be. It would be troublesome. He uses this word, Vihingsa. Vihingsa sanyi. I perceived the. Uh, how it would. The, uh, the, the abuse almost. It's not abuse, but the, how, how tr vexing it would be for me to teach. It would just be a bother, you know. What a bother it would be to teach. And he decided not to teach. That doesn't really sound good, you know, it sounds like he was just lazy or something like that. But it's more of a question of why would you teach? It is a good question. Why help another person? Why do it? And and there has to be a line there. If it means going out of your way to help someone else, it's a good question. Why are you doing it? I think it's clearly there's clearly room and it's not always necessary. But there certainly is room, logically, to help someone who asks you to teach. And so that's what happens. Brahma, Sahampati Brahma, this is the story, hears this and gets very, very concerned. Sahampati was, I think, one of the... Uh, he was a disciple of the Buddha in the past. He was an, an anagami, I believe. And he said... He was up in the Brahma realms and he, well, apparently at this time everyone was watching the Buddha and he became enlightened and all the, all the angels and Brahmas, they had taken up audience to watch the Buddha, to observe and to pay homage to the, this enlightened being, because none of them were enlightened, not fully. And uh, Brahma's watching and he goes, oh no, we can't let this happen. The world will be lost, the world will perish since the mind of the Tathagata accomplished and fully enlightened inclines to inaction rather than to teaching the Dhamma. And he transported himself, beamed himself down, vanished from the Brahma world and appeared before the Buddha, arranged his upper robe on one shoulder. You see, this is a why we wear the robe on one shoulder is out of respect, in fact. When paying respect to the Buddha, when paying respect to another monk, we always open one shoulder. And so it just became a standard to have one shoulder open. Or, yeah, um, it appears to have been just a tradition, a way of paying respect at that time. And he bowed down before the Buddha and he said, Let the Blessed One teach. And he gave some verses. It's quite a beautiful verse. He says, 
In Magadha until now there have been impure teachings devised by those still stained. Open the doors to the deathless. Let them hear the Dhamma that the stainless one has found. It's quite a good translation. Just as one who stands on a mountain peak can see below the people all around, so, O wise one, all-seeing sage, ascend to the palace of the Dhamma. Go up into your mountain palace and look out on the balcony. Let the sorrowless one survey this human breed engulfed in sorrow, overcome by birth and old age. Look at these people, wretched individuals who are suffering. Gaze upon them. Arise, victorious hero, caravan leader, debtless one. Debtless one, you don't need to help anyone. But do it, please. Wander in the world. Let the Blessed One teach the Dhamma. There will be those who understand. And this is really the important line. Apparently, because the Buddha then does a survey. He listened to the Brahma's pleading and out of compassion for beings. Well, let's take a look then. And he looked and he saw four types of people. Well, he doesn't explicitly say that, but he saw beings with little dust in their eyes and with much dust in their eyes. It means delusion. It's a metaphor for delusion. With keen faculties and dull faculties. With good qualities and with bad qualities. This is in his mind's eye, considering or perhaps even somehow with... Uh, extrasensory perception encompassing the minds of others easy to teach and hard to teach and some who dwell seeing fear and blame in the other world and then he gives this simile of four types of lotus some types of lotus grow up and stay underwater they grow there you know anything about lotuses some of them are quite beautiful but they just do nothing they, they stay in the water some go up to the water's surface some grow and oh no this isn't the four he said it elsewhere but here he's only got three and some rise above the water And rise clear, stand clear, unwetted by the water Means even though they come from the water they, they leave it without taking any water with them They become free from the water So he saw that there were people who would understand And who would be very interested And who were in fact at that moment looking for it um, Sari, uh, Sariputta and Moggallana are two very good examples When the Buddha was thinking this He must have seen them Because they were searching for him far and wide They were looking for the Buddha They didn't know it But they were looking for the teacher The teaching paths He must have seen the five ascetics Who he had left behind Who had left him behind, sorry when they saw that he was no longer torturing himself And he must have seen that they were looking so diligently And with, with not much difficulty would be able to understand And so he said 
he says open open for them are the doors to the deathless this is a beautiful verse as well aparuta tesang amatasadvara open to them is the door to the deathless amatta yesotavanto pamunchantu sadhang not quite sure what this means but he says translated as let the those who have ears sotavanto those who who can hear those with ears those can hear means those who will listen pamunchantu sadhang translates show their faith but pamunchantu is relating to become free but it may be pamunchantu sadha may they uh, may they find what they're looking for right this this doubt about which way to go let them become free from that so that they may be confident that in the right path And then he says, Vihingsa sanyi, thinking it would be troublesome. Pagunang nabhasing. I didn't speak what I had learned. Damang panitang manuje subrame. And here I think he gets the translation actually wrong. I don't agree with his translation at all. And it's, it looks like one of these instances where he was maybe in a hurry and so he just kind of fudged it. Or in a hurry or, or didn't quite understand it and you know how it can be. I think it's a mistake. Dhamang panitang manujesu brahma means brahma. The dhamma is, it's quite simple, the dhamma is sublime amongst humans. Meaning, humans see the dhamma as being sublime. Benita, it's something good it's a, it's a good sort of sublime meaning This is something that is valued so highly by humans That's how I understand it And this satisfied Brahma Because now the Buddha was going to teach And so he left I don't know, I'm, I'm going to stop there I'm going to quickly go through the rest Because I don't want to get too much And then so he went and taught the five ascetics yeah, oh no, first he met met uh, Ajivaka Which is an interesting little story But not that important He came to the five monks And then he taught them the The Dhammachakapavattana Sutta And began his teaching Then we come to the last part of the Sutta Which is where the Buddha having given this story Which is meant to rouse them And, and inspire them Oh, it's inspiring to think you, you build this up and then lead to the logical conclusion of going forth and becoming monks and so on. It's meant to inspire the monks in what they're doing, that they're on the same path that the Buddha followed, as are we all. And then, having inspired them, he gets down to business and he talks about sensual pleasure. Let's cut to the chase, get to the point. There are the five chords of sensual pleasure Things you see, things you hear, things you smell That you wish for, desire That are agreeable and likable Connected with sensual desire And provocative of lust And he says Those religious types Samanas or brahmanas Who are tied to these sensual things 
infatuated with them and utterly committed to them, who use them without seeing the danger in them or understanding the escape from them. It may be understood of them, they have met with calamity, met with disaster. Mara may do with them as he likes. This is how we describe someone who is caught up in becomes like a uh, you become trapped gets uh, it builds up and builds up and you just don't know how to get out of it it's like a wild animal who doesn't want to be trapped wants to be free wants to be happy and finds itself caught up in the hunter's trap this is the simile the buddha gives the allegory i think it's called Just like a deer that is trapped by a hunter, so too one who is trapped by sensuality, caught up in so many traps, right? You have to find money, you have to you have to create this stability just so you can enjoy your pleasure. And then of course the trap is that you need it. And you need it more and more and more and it gives less and less and less pleasure every time. So you have to seek out new pleasures and you're trapped before you realize that you're just caught up in meaningless pointless activity, sometimes even evil oftentimes even evil, unwholesome unethical activity just to get what you want trapped can't go anywhere, can't become anything life's not in any way impressive or valuable or meaningful just caught up in meaningless things that's the idea and then the uh, the other example is suppose there is a deer that is not free that is not caught up a wild deer free to roam as it will there's something romantic about this idea of living in the wild without any you know how caught up people are in in their needs just to get by just to get food and shelter and so on so it's not like deer have an easy life. In fact, it could be a terrible, awful, hard life. But in Canada, anyway. But in warmer climates, perhaps, for a time, the idea is just of being free and having not having to, not having to uh, answer to anyone. In the same way, a person who is not caught up. In this, in sensuality, this is what they're like. So we talk about freedom and and happiness and peace, and the Buddha is pinpointing the problem. You can't be at peace even you live off in the forest like a deer. If you're still caught up in desire, you can never be happy, even in the most peaceful setting, even in the happiest setting. But a person who is not tied down to sensuality can be happy anywhere in any situation and then he goes through the the stages of you know really in this case he goes through all the jhanas and eventually comes beyond them and he talks about how enlightenment is beyond the jhanas having left them behind one enters into the cessation of perception and feeling which is a description of nibbana 
and this is where the taints are def are destroyed and one is said to have gone beyond the range of mara in uh, in the so in the case of the jhanas in the case of ordinary meditation even in the case of insight meditation one is said to have blindfolded mara one has sort of put up a smoke screen so mara can't see you you are invisible to Mara. When someone enters into trance states of meditation, peaceful states of meditation, it's like Mara is blindfolded, can't get at you. Why? Because you have no greed, no desire, you're, you're content, you're at peace. But it, you haven't gone beyond the range of Mara because it has to end. When one enters into Nibbana, cessation of perception and feeling, Uh, one has gone beyond the realm of realm of Mara because it changes one. This is the idea that it uh, being fundamentally different, it adds this quality to your mind, this stability to your mind. It puts that kernel of enlightenment, this is the idea, into your mind. It leads to a profound and complete state of letting go where you're unable even if you tried to want anything there's no there's no where there become where there comes no comes to be no potential no link no cause no ability to become attached to anything that's the idea and that, in a nutshell, is the uh, Aryapariyasana Sutta. Again, if you're really interested, I encourage you to read the Sutta yourselves. This is just a means for us to inject a little bit of background and some theory and some of the ideas into our practice to give encouragement and direction. So that's the Dhamma for tonight. Thank you all for tuning in. Have a good night.